Well, I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Colossians as we continue to work our way through uh, chapter 1. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to uh, begin by reading in verse 9. We're going to read verses 9 and 10 uh, together. We, we did cover most of these verses uh, last week, but uh, it's important, obviously, we, we go back and remember where we are as we did leave off in the middle of one of Paul's sentences. So uh, let's just get our bearings once again and uh, look at verse 9 and 10 again. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Uh, so Paul has prayed here that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, that is, his revealed will, the scriptures we discussed last week. And he has prayed that they not just have an intellectual grasp of this, but that they would further have a spirit-given wisdom and understanding of the, the word of God. That is, that they would really, truly understand it and believe it. And then he gave us the purpose uh, for this prayer, the purpose of understanding and knowing, growing in the knowledge of the will of God, so that... They might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And if you remember last time we said that, that phrase, fully pleasing to Him, might be better translated, pleasing Him in every matter, something to that effect, in, in every regard. That is, His desire is that they would know the will of God in a, in a, in a spirit, with a spirit-given wisdom of it, that they might then, in whatever circumstances they find themselves, know and, and, and then do that which pleases the Lord. So again, with that, that last phrase there, if you remember, Paul's not saying that we as Christians are displeasing to God uh, you know, until all these things take place and we are filled with some certain knowledge we finally get to and then you know, God moves from just tolerating us to now actually being pleased with us and, and loving us. No, he's saying that he, just, he wants them to know the will of God so that in everything they face, they're going to know what is righteous what is the right thing to do, the thing that pleases the Lord, and then to walk in that manner, to do that, that thing. And now, as we continue in verse 10, if you're looking at uh, an ESV, or at least I should say a, a recent edition of the ESV, older ones don't have this, but uh, a newer one does, you'll see a, a colon that comes after the, the, the phrase pleasing to him. And I think if that, that's helpful, and I think a good a good uh, this 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 uh, is not this punctuation is not in the Greek text. Uh, the, the 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 translators are trying to do their best to give us punctuation. And uh, as the ESV was updated, I'm not sure what year they did this. They added this colon, and it's helpful because it can be confusing. There's just a list of things that come at us in a really long sentence that we are told not to write. Uh, these long sentences, it can be hard to know how it all relates. Well, I think this this is a key that is is helpful. Because Paul is now going to give us four characteristics of what it looks like or what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So he has said, his desires that they might 
these Colossian readers and us who read this might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And now he's going to explain uh, four, four ways in which we might do that. Four ways, the characteristics of this. And these, these four different characteristics are found in the next couple of verses here as we look at these words that end with I-N-G or participles if you like grammar. And so these four words, these four characteristics, we have bearing fruit, then we have increasing in the knowledge of God, then verse 11, being strengthened, and then verse 12, giving thanks. And so these all qualify what it means, what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So today, uh, in this sermon, we're going to look at the first three of those. So we're going we're to leave giving thanks to the Father uh, for next week. As Paul's going to say giving thanks to the Father and then, and then dive into various things that the Father has done, reasons why it is appropriate to give thanks to Him. So we'll leave that for next week. It would have been appropriate to cover that on Father's Day of all things, but we missed it and we'll just have to trust the Lord uh, that it's okay. Happy Father's Day, by the way. I don't think anyone said that. So we're looking at three of the characteristics today, this morning, of walking worthy of the Lord. Now, just before we dive into those, just one more comment I want to make on this matter of walking worthy of the Lord. Uh, sometimes this phrase, this idea, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, uh, leaves us with an incredible uh, and an unbearable weight. As if we are called to show that we are somehow worthy of salvation. As if Paul's saying, now set about trying to show the Lord that you deserve this thing. A John Davenant, he wrote in the 1600s, he said this, Here some may ask, how is it possible to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or of God, or of the gospel, or of our vocation, since nothing adequately corresponds to the high excellency of all these things except perfect and immaculate righteousness and holiness, such as is not found in men who retain this body of sin. And then he goes on and says, I answer, the word worthy in the scriptures do not always denote the exact proportion of equality of one thing to another, but a certain accordance or suitableness which takes away repugnance. So I think that's helpful. Paul is saying, adorn this gospel that you believe. That, that's what he's saying. He's not, he's not proved to the Lord you're worthy of this thing. That's not what he's getting at. The reality is we simply could never do such a thing. We can never make ourselves worthy. Which is what, precisely why salvation is, is called God's grace. It's his mercy. We can't earn it. We certainly cannot and do not deserve it. A sinner can never become deserving of Christ's death and his resurrection on their behalf. This salvation, forgiveness of sins, is something that is granted to us, given to us as a gift of God's grace. And we're going to look more at that next week as we get into verses 12 and following. Now, this is not, so, so Paul's not throwing out here some unbearable weight and burden we can't possibly, you know, we're just, just going to make us feel awful every day of our life. Uh, but, this doesn't mean that this is some simple or small matter, or unimportant matter. Well, it's not a matter of, you know, 
our, our salvation to this live a life worthy of the Lord, right? making up for it or paying for salvation or anything like that. So therefore, it's somehow not important. That's not true. Uh, heard, we've said it many times. You've heard it said. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, but that salvation is never alone. There's always a fruitfulness that is revealed in those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this we're talking about is still very lofty, still a very high pursuit to seek to live our lives in a suitable manner to adorn this gospel that we believe. And so let's not be lulled into thinking that this is you know, not a, a big deal or not very important. So Paul, again, here he's praying. He's praying for these Colossian believers. So interestingly, as we look at this, he's not actually issuing commands to them at this point. He's going to give them some imperatives later on. But right now, he's just telling them the substance of his prayer. But as he prays, he's revealing to us what maturity looks like, what walking worthy of the Lord looks like, which in turn ought to shape our understanding and our pursuits in this life. So I I would suggest it is right then for you to examine these characteristics as we go through this, and then to seek to pursue them in every way, praying for these things yourself, as Paul is praying for the Colossians, giving yourself to these things as you are able, and so on. So, so let's do that now together as we look at this text. So the first characteristic of the one who walks in a manner worthy of the Lord is found midway through verse 10, where he says, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. This concept of bearing fruit, this is found throughout the Bible, and it's a helpful picture of the Christian life. Fruit in general refers to actions and qualities and virtues that a person possesses, or the lack thereof. Jesus teaches us, as the scriptures do consistently, that humans are naturally born as sinful people, with sinful natures. And because of this, we bear bad fruit. So this sinful nature that we are born with produces sinful thoughts and sinful actions. Jesus makes this clear in Mark chapter 7, one place. Likewise, in Matthew 7, he speaks of these such bad trees that produce this bad fruit. And so you can, you can tell, Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, for example, you can tell what quality the tree is by examining the fruit. If the tree is bad, it produces rotten fruit. And Jesus says, the tree is what needs to be made healthy again in order that it might bear healthy, good fruit. And so this is what happens when a person is born again by the Spirit of God. They become new. They're given a new heart that has new desires And this is the work of God. uh, Jesus makes this very clear in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. That's another way of saying that this bad tree needs to be made new, needs to be made a healthy tree. And in John 3, Jesus even goes so far as to say that this must occur in a person if they are to see enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again, he says. There's no other way. It has to happen. And so this really is what a Christian is. It is somebody 
Whatever else we might say about them, it is somebody who has been made new within, born again. Moreover, in John 15, Jesus, also talking about fruit and, and believers, says that he is the vine, calls his people the branches, and it is the one who abides in Christ by faith that ultimately is the one who will bear good fruit. And it is only the one who abides in Christ by faith who bears good fruit. So we are born again by the Spirit of God, united to Christ by faith, and now this is the person who can bear good fruit and does bear good fruit. So, good fruit in the Bible refers to the good actions, thoughts, qualities, virtues that flow from a heart that has been made new by the Spirit of God. So good fruit is not just doing a good thing now and then. It is not just a mere external thing. right? Jesus does not just say replace the bad fruit with some good fruit, like you hang this on a dead tree. No, you, the tree needs to be made whole. It needs to be made new. And so good fruit is internal and external virtues that spring forth from a renewed heart that trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Kelly read earlier from Galatians 5 where we have the list of the fruit of the Spirit. These are some of those fruits the Bible talks about. Again, it's fruit of the Spirit that comes from Him as He works in a believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can see how these are inward things that also make their way outward. Now the bearing fruit that's mentioned here in Colossians 1 he says it's a bearing fruit in every good work. Which seems, I think what he's getting at here, is he's desiring they bear fruit in every kind of good work. Every type, all sorts. That is, it's a general statement. Speaking about the whole life. That believers might bear fruit in every arena, every area. So unlike a tree which bears one type of fruit, Christians are those who are to bear various types of fruit. All kinds of good works. And good works are defined by God himself. He's the one who tells us what is good. His Bible makes the word, his word, the Bible makes this clear. There's, there's all kinds of, of things we could give here as examples. Acts of love, loving neighbor, worshiping God, uh, serving family and neighbor, Kindness to enemies and strangers, submission where necessary, where appropriate, evangelism, and so on. The list can go on. And so this phrase, bearing fruit in every good work, reminds us that the Christian life is not just restricted to one area. As if we are simply those people who go to church on Sunday. Or we are simply those people who might be careful of our tongues, and we, we just don't swear, or we just watch a certain type of movie but not others, as if it's restricted to just one thing. And so I would urge you, as you examine your own heart, to consider those areas where good fruit is perhaps lacking. Certainly, I would encourage you, rejoice at the evidence of God's grace in your life where fruit is there, this is 
good. We rejoice in these things. But to go beyond that as well and to examine other areas where perhaps fruit is lacking. To press on, to consider the kinds of fruit which you lack. And to give yourself then to repentance, to prayer, and to the pursuit of faithfulness in those areas. The development of those areas, those fruits. The firefighter does not sit down satisfied after putting out the fire in one room while the rest of the house remains ablaze. Likewise, let us not rest when we see the flesh subdued in one area and fruit growing there while the flesh remains ablaze in other areas. Pray, pray and labor to see every aspect of your lives bearing fruit in Christ's kingdom. I think there's a real potential that we might even inadvertently just become self-satisfied with fruit in, in one area while letting our guard down in other areas. Perhaps those things that come easiest to us. We, we, we rejoice, we like that those things are good and we should rejoice in those things. But to go beyond that and to pray about these areas of our flesh that continue to rage. So a life worthy of the Lord is a life that is bearing fruit in every good work. The second characteristic of living worthily is at the end of verse 10. He says, an increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. I think this is a fairly straightforward statement. It's talking about a growth in one's knowledge and one's understanding about God, about His person, about who He is. And so interestingly, of no less concern to Paul than one's fruitful actions is one's increased knowledge of God and what one believes about Him. Now this believing about God, what we believe about Him, our understanding of Him, study about God, there's a good word for this. It's called theology, a word you know. Now, we might, we rightly speak of a, we might say a theology of the end times or a theology of the church, but theology proper, as it's sometimes known, is the study of God himself, who he is, what he is like, his triunity, his attributes, and so on. So if you're tracking here with Paul and the flow of his argument, thinking back to verses 9 and 10 and, and what we talked about last week, Paul has prayed for an increased understanding of the knowledge of God's will so they'll walk worthy. And one of the ways in which they will do that is through this increased knowledge of God himself, that this very increase in knowledge pleases him. So it is God's will that we might know him and we might grow in our knowledge of him. And again, this is not simply an academic exercise. This is not simply an increased grasp of some facts. This is not just a casual survey of some different views that are out there. This is knowing God that increases one's intimacy with Him. It's similar, I think, to how we might in, have increased intimacy with our spouses as we get to know them more. Or if we move it outside of our spouses with people in general. We use this phrase, the more I get to know this person, the more I like them. 
That can go the other way too, but we'll stick with the positive for now. The more I get to know them, the more I like them. Why do we say that? Because there's this understanding. You can't get to know everything there is to know about a person in the first time you have a conversation, the first time you meet them. And so there's things we learn about people as we go. And we get to know them more. We might, well, I didn't know that about them. I appreciate that about them. And even as we get to learn some of the lesser qualities of people, we do get to know them more. And hopefully, you appreciate them all the more. And so with God, there is nothing negative or dark or sinful that we have to deal with as we get to know Him. But as time goes by, we learn more about Him. And this increases our faith and our trust of Him and our love for Him. And this increase, of course, this knowledge of God comes through the Scriptures, which are God's self-revelation. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. And yet I'll also add that some of our knowledge about God does come through experience as well. So let me just explain that. You might pick up God's Word where He's revealed Himself and read it and rightly come to, to know that God is faithful. You read the scriptures and you see it all over the place. From Genesis through Revelation, God is faithful. He's filled with steadfast love and faithfulness to His covenant people. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New. Revelation's telling us it will continue until the end. And we get to know God in this way. This is who He is. But then this gets driven home all the more as you face trial of various kinds. And God then brings you through that trial with your faith standing and still intact. And you can say, I knew this about you because I read it in your word and I was sure of it, but now I have also experienced and, and realized your faithfulness to me individually. And so your song is all the more sweeter as you sing of God's love and His faithfulness. So a life worthy of the Lord is one that increases in the knowledge of God through a life of studying the Word of God and therein learning about Him. And then also through a life of tested faith in which that knowledge gets applied and faith gets refined. So let me just plead with you to study the Scriptures, to study theology, Again, not just to open the Bible and say, I'm just looking for something that will just, you know, three things I can do today or something I can just do today. But to open it to get to know your God, your Redeemer more. This is a characteristic, Paul says, of those whose lives, who live lives worthy of the Lord. This is fitting with His salvation. It pleases Him. And so I encourage you to put off excuses you might give to the study of the Word, to try to understand sometimes complex issues about God and who He is, to push through your short attention span, the distractions of this digital age, to retrain your brain, to focus for a 
the, the amount of time it requires to sit down and read a book. God knew the internet was coming when he inspired his word. And he has intentionally given us his word. And so strain and pray that these things might take place in your life. That you might know your God. Which is joy for you and pleasing to him. If you think that maybe this just seems like arduous work and task and one more thing I've got to do, this is not what the Bible teaches. Right? That, you need that part of your thinking renewed in the Scripture. It is for your good to know your God. And it's pleasing to Him. So the third characteristic of a life that is worthy of the Lord is that which is being strengthened to joyfully endure. So verse 11, he says, Being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul prays here for a strengthening, he says, with all power. Meaning he wants them equipped with all the needed spiritual or spirit-given power. And he acknowledges this, that, that this enabling is by God's great might, as he says, according to God's glorious might. So God's strength, his might, is the source of this strengthening. And as he calls it glorious might here, it reminds you and I in our weakness that God's might is indeed great. So if you are feeling weak, you are feeling tired, you are uncertain of your ability to persevere, you're uncertain of your ability to be patient, to endure, to press on, be reminded here of the glorious might of God, which is your source and hope of strength to carry on. And then think of the scriptures and all those stories you grew up learning from the Old Testament. And how over and over again they remind us of the strength the power, the might of God. That God would take a slave nation and remove them from the grip of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations on the planet at the time. It's silly by human standards, but God did it according to His great might. Gideon's 300 men sending to flight an army. Silliness, but not so according to God's might. Marching around a city seven times and having the walls fall down. This is not how you wage war, but God is showing us His power and His might. So that when He says in the New Testament that He is mighty to save, we look back on that and we place our hope there. That we don't place confidence in our flesh. Oh, I'm strong. I think I can do this. No problem. I got this. That is what Peter did and he failed miserably, afraid of even a girl as they're gathered around the fire the night the Lord was betrayed and ultimately sentenced to death. Rather, our hope for perseverance and for strength, is that the Lord will build us up. And He doesn't give us all of that strength in one go. That we just pray this prayer, we become a Christian, and now we stand here, we look out on the world, nothing ever looks scary, we just are mighty as can be, we stand there with capes on and all is well. That is not how it works. We trust that God will give us strength for each moment as we go. We don't know what tomorrow holds, so we ask God for strength for today. And we look for strength now. We don't know what our world's going to hold. We look out. We see some rather alarming things going on. They are rightly concerning to us. 
And we might even wonder what might happen if some of those things came home. But where do we look to for strength? Not your own power, not your own cleverness, but to our God who is able to save and to keep you. This is our hope. And as Paul prays for this strength here, he acknowledges this sources from God. And he gives the end goal of the particular strength he has in mind. It's not just a generic strength, but a strength for all endurance and patience with joy. These words, for all, they indicate the goal of the strength that he desires the Colossians and likewise us to have. But it also reveals that this is again a broad category. He's desiring all types of endurance, all types of patience, wherever we might have need of it. And the reality is, there are all kinds of reasons in the Christian life why you and I need endurance and patience. These two words, endurance and patience, they're basically synonymous in the Greek. Together they indicate a resolute endurance and tranquility that does not retaliate or lash out under difficult circumstances. So John Davenant, again, writing in the 17th century, he says that this patience is necessary to all the godly because occasion of exercising it occurs in every hand. And he goes on to list three occasions when we need this patience. First, God disciplines His children, which calls for patience. Hebrews 12.7 says that very thing. God's discipline of us requires patience. The sinful world that we live in results in trials coming our way, tribulation upon believers, requiring patience and endurance. Thirdly, other godly virtues are slow in developing within us, and so patience is required. I trust you identify with that. Again, we pray for something. It doesn't happen right away. We get impatient with it. We get upset. God's not answering my prayer. First of all, you're not the first one to feel that. In the 17th century, as Davenant's writing this, he knew it. Christians knew it. Sanctification is a slow process. But we tend to get impatient with it. Jesus reminds us, Luke 18, to pray and to never give up as he tells this parable of the persistent woman. When our prayers are not answered right away, it's not reason to say, well, I tried. Rather, Jesus says, we press in. It's all the more reason to pray. All the more need for God's help when sanctification is slow. So the Christian life is really one of patience and endurance and waiting. We're constantly watching and waiting and being on guard for our own lives, guarding our own hearts, our own doctrine, and also those around us, those in our care, perhaps our children, our family, friends, our fellow church members. Moreover, the Bible tells us that it is those who persevere in faith to the end who are saved. Some seem to begin the Christian life, but they fall away. Jesus tells the parable of the sower to tell us this exact thing. And yet as they fall away, proving ultimately to be unfruitful, and to not be born again. And Paul is going to say down in verse 22 and 23 of, of Colossians 1, 
that those who will be presented blameless before the Lord are those who will continue in the faith, continue in the hope of the gospel, that Jesus is my only hope of righteousness. His death and resurrection, my only hope of forgiveness of sins. And this need for endurance, again, sometimes is, is overwhelming. As we consider our weakness, we see our own sinfulness. We see how we fall in seemingly small and insignificant battles. You might wonder how you'd handle bigger ones. But again, we look to the Lord for help, for grace to get through today, strength for today. We trust Him for strength tomorrow and in the days to come. And while these, this topic of endurance and patience, having to endure difficulty, now this is not normally something we would associate with joy. I don't think that's very natural of us. Nobody's like, ooh, endure. That sounds like fun. That sounds like difficulty, hard work. Patience means there's something that's displeasing to us, that we would like to be past. And yet joy is a distinctive of Christian perseverance and patience. Many people bear up under great difficulty with sort of a fatalistic view of things. Well, there's nothing I can do about it, so I just don't complain. But there's a distinctive of Christian patience that it is marked with rejoicing, even in the midst of it. It was Jesus who said, Rejoice and be glad when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's Matthew 7, verse 11 to 12. And we see this. The apostles did the same thing. They were persecuted, imprisoned, threatened. And they, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Indeed, we know from Romans 8, the Lord works all things together for good. For those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And so joy is indeed appropriate even when the cup tastes bitter. Because even that, the Lord is working for your good if you're trusting in Christ. Even if we don't see it now, this is what his word promises. He is working in you, he is faithful. So remember your weakness. Don't be deluded by thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. And pray to God for strength. Begin with just strength for today. Remember the necessity of patience in the Christian life, endurance. And look to Him, the Lord, in joy for the hope of endurance and perseverance. And so as you see these characteristics of what it is to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, join Paul in this prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your children. Pray it for those around you. Pray it for your church family. Have your thinking corrected where needed in any of these matters. Pursue repentance. Strive to believe what it is that God lays out here in His Word. 
And may you pursue these fruits in your life. Bearing fruit in all good works. Increasing in the knowledge of the Almighty. And joyful endurance rooted in the glorious strength and might of your God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our weakness to you. We are in daily need of your help. We can sin and sin grievously at any moment. Father, may we not be proud of anything we have, but recognize anything and everything we have that might be good, any fruit we might bear, is ultimately the result of your grace being worked in us. And may we, in humble dependence, walk with you. Father, I pray you would strengthen us according to your glorious might with all power for every situation, Father. Help us to lift our heads when we have failed, when we have sinned, to remember Christ to remember the greatness of His salvation, to trust Your promise that You will keep us through to the end and help us to put one foot in front of the other and continue to go forward, even as we might tremble at what might come, trusting not our own might, but Your might. Father, I pray You would do many glorious things in our midst and through Your people that are gathered here now and those who cannot be with us. Father, we are nothing in the eyes of the world. May we be okay with that. May we be fine with that. And may you show the glory of your salvation by drawing people to yourself through our feeble efforts to share Christ, through our feeble efforts to live a life worthy of Christ, to live a suitable life adorning this great gospel. Father, we are useless apart from you. We pray for your help, your strength, that you would help us to endure. Father, We pray that you would glorify your name in this moment in history, in this part of the world where there is so much confusion and darkness. Father, grant us grace and strength to walk consistently with what we profess, repenting of sin when it comes into the light and bearing fruit in every good work. Father, Show us what we need to know. Show us where we fall short. Strengthen us to bear fruit. Strengthen us to repent. Come in your power, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.